Was he there for Master P? Master P? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I said, yeah, this is He cool. was there with Master P. Yeah. That was the greatest. That was the greatest. No, that was the greatest. Hey, we used to, we used to, I remember we used to go in our little, you know, stretching before practice. Master P was there. I go, hey, um, uh, what is Percival? I think his name yeah, was Percy. Like Percy. I said, hey, I said, you know, I cannot call you Master since I'm the coach. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, hey, P. I said, how many records you sell last night? Uh, yesterday, go, oh, come on, coach. Remember, we would have the exhibition games and they were fucking selling out. Dude. Yeah, that was the thing. It know? was That's selling out, and then they was fine. like, and they start playing the music and yeah. shit. Yeah. And everybody yeah. was coming in that, like, the camouflage. Yeah, no limit soldiers. And you yeah. had to, like, play them. It was like, <laughs> we got to put the guy in. We want P. Oh, yeah. We I put it, man. It's, it's an exhibition game. Who gives a damn? God, <laughs> that was. Master P. <laughs> Welcome to Pushing Through. It is Tuesday, June 16th, 2020. I am Tate Frazier, and as always, I am joined by the kid, BJ Armstrong. BJ, I am back in L.A. County. We are in the same county. Uh, I'm very excited. I feel like we're getting closer to being in the same studio one day, hopefully. I'm going to call you Mr. Carter today. Welcome back. Welcome back. <laughs> welcome back. Mr. Carter, that's your name right now. You know what? You look like Mr. Carter. <laughs> hey, you know, Tate Frazier, a.k.a. Mm. Mr. Carter. <laughs> I like that. I mean, I feel like it's like Mason 04. I feel like I'm back home. I feel like uh, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, and we got lots of things to talk about, BJ. We got PGA Tour going on. We got NASCAR going on. We got right. basketball, the back and forth that we've talked about ad nauseum on this program. Uh, the MLB, there is a variability if they will come back or won't come back. I don't want to get into the minutia of it all, BJ, but as as two guys who love the game of basketball and love, you know, sports in general and what they can do for the world, what do you expect, you know, from the sports world when they come back? Are, are you are you itching for it to happen? Because I feel like people, you know, we're slowly getting it, but we're not getting the, the huge moment where it's like officially sports are back. Let's celebrate. Let's rejoice because there are so many other things going on in the world, obviously. Well, Tate, as you know, you have been following closely like everyone else mm -hmm. about the return of sports, in particular basketball. You're beginning to see a lot of rhetoric, you know, some coming from the league, players, teams, owners, media on what this could potentially look like. And I think Commissioner uh, Silver made an announcement last night kind of giving another general statement on the possibility on why they want to return. Mm -hmm. And you can see that the players are communicating, um, whether it's the executive committee, now players led by, you know, in particular two players who seem to have kind of positioned themselves, or at least they're getting the most uh, media coverage has been Kyrie Irving and Dwight Howard. So. I think all of this communication that we're seeing is good from the standpoint of trying to figure out what this could potentially look like. And we'll see. We'll see how it plays out. But in first and foremost, you know, I want to listen to all. I want to listen to the players because when the players stop bringing the adults, myself, 
you know, at my age, um, as one of the leaders uh, in this business, um, when they stop bringing us the problems and we stop listening to the players, then we have failed, you know, that generation. And that is the biggest thing that I want to make myself available. So I think it's great that everyone's talking. I think it's great that everyone has ideas that they are sharing and their concerns as they should, as we all should. And then we'll move from there. But again, I don't want to remove and stay principled to the fact that health and safety has to be at the forefront. And then we will science this situation. We will put together the best plan in place to see if this is possible because we understand the economic ramifications of it, but we also have to deal with the people and we can't lose, you know, sight of the people. And in particular, the people are the players and let's deal with that and see where uh, it turns out. So as you can tell, Tate, I want to stay with what I understand most mm -hmm. when you're dealing with situations like this is the leadership has to be impeccable mm -hmm. and be able to provide the players a voice. I would love for the players to have their voice and to be heard, not just told what to do, as the owners should have to be able to voice their concerns as owners and as the league and as a partner and all of these people. And then we figure out, and that's what we call a win-win, Tate. So uh, the agent here is working on the phone to try to create a win-win with all involved. Yeah, we want a win-win scenario, and like you said, I mean, there is a—it's a funny. There's irony behind it all, right? The MLB is being accused of not loving the game enough because they're saying they may not come back. Uh, the NBA is being accused for not loving their players enough because they want to bring the game back. So, like you said, it, being in these positions, you're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place. And the only way to get people to understand uh, through rhetoric or whatever it may be is to, like you said, put the communication out there, put the message out there. Kyrie yes. and Avery Bradley and Dwight Howard, they use the media to put their message out there. Pat Beverly, you know, he uses his own personal Twitter to say, look, I love that everyone's giving their voices, but if LeBron and the league say we're playing – we're playing, so suit up, you know? So that's his opinion on it. Austin Rivers goes and gives his, his opinion on it. Every player is showing their voice. And I think, if anything, to take away from this all is, is to show that all these guys in the NBA, they are not afraid, right, to voice what they feel and how they stand on these issues. And then, well, then we can move forward, you know? It's like, state where you are, stay, you know, stay in your ground, say what you want to say. And then we all collectively, like you said in the last episode, will find a way united to make a decision to move forward. And if yeah. that decision is no basketball, then at least it's a united decision and we're all together. Yeah, and, and Tate, you're exactly right. And look, there are ways to, we can figure out what lens we want to look at this from. Mm -hmm. And without question, we can't deny, you know, the pandemic. We can't deny the civil unrest that we're currently seeing. Mm -hmm. But what we can do is acknowledge how we could contribute to the problem solving that's necessary in both mm -hmm. right and and all of us can agree of the following it's going to require resources <laughs> okay mm -hmm. so one of the solutions could easily be that you know what because if we do decide to play that now we are going to contribute to you know all the civil unrest and the things that we're currently seeing and viewing in this country. Mm -hmm. Well, really all around the world. Yep. And we can, as a united group, say the players are going to contribute 
and the owners are going to contribute because they are partners. Yep. And we're going to try to figure this out so that now we can get to the problem solving scenario, which is it's going to require resources. It just can't, you know, the first part is now we've been, we, everyone is aware, right? Everyone is doing the social media protesting and all those things. But now how can we now execute and organize ourselves to where now we put our money where our mouth is? Mm -hmm. That's, that's phase two now. Now, where are we going to say, yes, we would love to come back, but now we want to make sure that what's currently going on in this nation and all around the world never rears its health, its head up again because of our contribution that started here. Mm -hmm. And that to me can't just, this just can't be a moment. Okay. This just can't be a moment in time. We're trying to create a movement so that this doesn't happen again. So take 20 years, 30 years where you and I aren't still talking about racial inequality and all of the things we're discussing now. How did we move the needle mm -hmm. and what are we going to do to move this thing forward? So I think that's just that's just a small idea as we're talking here. But again, I'm not part of the negotiations, but at the same time, let's figure this out because within this op within this situation there lies an enormous opportunity mm -hmm. and can we come together and figure that out i think is something that we all have to sit down and and, and talk this through and it's one of those things where it's such a large and central uh, issue for all these people that are involved that it is sometimes when you have something like that, it can bring people together. Whether, you know, we've heard over the years with the NBA, there, there's micro generations within the generations of players that come in. There's there's clicks that, and that happens with every sort of organization. But there, if there's something that is a larger calling, you see people come together. It does seem like regardless of what's going on, Kyrie's reached out to, you know, Steven Jackson, someone from an older generation. They've had a rapport and a conversation. And I think that's pretty much what you're saying. You know, you want the players that are in the league now to know the guys that have been through this yes. whole thing. We're, we're here. You know, we, we've been here. Bill Russell was there in 1968 when yes. Martin Luther King was assassinated yes. and had to decide if he was going to play basketball. Yes. Th there and, have been hard choices before. Yes, there have been hard choices. This isn't the first. Surely it won't be the last. And we have to stay principled. We have to stay principled here because the everyone should have a voice. There's no correct way to, to do just one thing. But if we look at it, we lean on the Bill Russells, the Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's, mm -hmm. Jim Brown. We lean on these people who've been down these paths. We lean on people who are, you know, been and seen these, you know, these things before. Mm -hmm. I think it gives us an enormous opportunity all because we've been, this is going to, this is a situation, as you know, Tate, and you and I have discussed it, that's, it's going to include everyone, mm -hmm. right? You can't just ignore as if this isn't, isn't happening. Whether you are black, white, doesn't matter. Everyone will be involved with this. So now we have an opportunity to lean on all people who have experience and to be able to come up with a solution because this just can't be a moment, especially for the youth. There, This has to be a movement. And the movement starts right now. And we have this opportunity. And within this difficult time, because it is difficult. Mm -hmm lies an enormous opportunity. And when we look back on it, 
that's what we will remember. Mm-hmm. Did we get something done that we can carry into the future that's going to get us to our end result? Or are we going to sit here and say, coulda, woulda, shoulda, oughta, and nothing has changed? Mm-hmm. And that's the last thing I think all of us want. Absolutely. Nobody wants that. And uh, I will say, you look at the names and the guys that have come out, you know, the Jalen Browns, the Malcolm Brogdons of the world, some of these young guys that they're not as secure in the place as a superstar in the league, but they're not afraid to use well, their platform, they, make a I statement, mean, you, and go from there. Yeah. I mean, you guys are, you, listen, you guys are young. Mm-hmm. You guys are, you're still trying to answer and find out your place, right? I'm I'm 50. You know, I, I tell you all the time, I'm over 50 now. Well, been there done that Tate <laughs> you know yep. but you're still trying to figure that out so I applaud the Jalen Browns I applaud all of these young people who are out here all of the people who are out here because now we have an opportunity and now let's be strategic in how we move forward mm-hmm. and uh you know I, to take it back to basketball I want to go back to a, a story that you told me about you being strategic moving forward a guy that we love on this program who has always been very strategic and how he moves. And uh, and we call him the master hero on this show, and he goes by Master P to the rest of the world. And uh, what he was able to do strategically uh, with the Charlotte Hornets back in the late 90s is something that, that I've never seen or even quite could, could come together and really fathom until it happened. And for people that don't know, Master P, Percy Miller, uh, he went into the Charlotte Hornets with your coach, Dave Cowens, uh, and you guys had to deal with Percy Miller pressing, <laughs> get a deal with Percy Miller talking that shit to everybody, and, and, and being a, a rap icon, but also being a guy who loves the game of basketball and wanted to prove his point. And uh, we're going to get to Coach Cowens. We, we have him as a guest that we talked to him in Chicago. But before we get to that, BJ, can you give us something for Master P uh, in Charlotte Hornets camp with you? Well, you know, Master P... Um, that was one of, I really have a hard time trying to put this in perspective because, you know, here was a guy who was at the top of his game. I mean, he's, mm-hmm. you know, he's a, a no limit soldier. Yeah. yeah. He's a no limit. He has his own label. He's selling millions of records. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a, he's a star. He's a star of stars uh, at that time. And uh, he still is. And I just remember him coming into camp, training camp, and not knowing what to expect. I had never met Master P and or Percy. Um, But he came there, he was hungry, and he was thirsty. (laughs) And he came with such energy every single day. And I just remember, I mean, he took this serious. This wasn't a gimmick. He, he came to practice every single day. He came early. He stayed late. And the most important thing, you saw the improvement from the first day when he got there to the end. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't interested in what he had accomplished as, a, as an artist, as a, as, a, as a rap artist, as a musician. He was interested in being respectful, most importantly, to being a, a, a professional basketball player. And he did that. And, and the respect that I have for him was immense then mm-hmm. and even more so now because you, he was landing out on the line and literally, you know, because he was a guard, he would he would play 94 feet mm-hmm. and he just wouldn't quit. He just wouldn't quit. I mean, every single day and uh, we got to get him on the show to let him tell the story. And, you know, Coach Cowens, you know, alluded to it. I mean, when he came... He brought that energy every day. 
Mm-hmm. And um, I'll never forget one of the most fascinating things I've seen in a preseason game. And, you know, as most NBA players, no one likes to play in the preseason games. Mm-hmm. We were selling out in the preseason because of Percy. <laughs> we were selling out. I mean, mm-hmm. at home and on the road. And everyone, I'll never forget this, everyone was coming to the games in army fatigues. Yep. Soldiers. And everyone, <laughs> and, and he was bringing them out. <laughs> and all I remember was make him say uh make him say uh was at the it was at the head of it but most importantly they would be chanting the whole crowd would be chanting we want P and we had to put him in the game mm-hmm. and he would show up and he didn't run away from the moment and um he's a great guy I mean we would have discussions he was always talking about business he was talking about all of these things <laughs> that were just now you know, now that I, you know, now living in the social media, he was promoting himself and doing those things back then. And we're mm-hmm. talking back in the 90s. He was so ahead of that curve and always taking ideas, ownership mm-hmm. and doing all those things, you know, and um, I'm just happy to call him a friend because I, I mean, he is great. If you want ideas on how to be an entrepreneur, then we got to get P. I mean. He is terrific in that regard, and uh, I mean it's great. It's great what he's doing, and uh, but we definitely got to get him on now. You got me on my master P yeah, thing. And, I, I, I was gonna say he need if there's anyone that needs a master class, it's Master P, and Master P can, uh, he can break it down for you. you know? I mean he can he can just tell you what what you got to do, and uh, you know with, with the whole experience of Master P, you, you said you wanted him on pushing through. We were on his show when he came to your office one day. We oh, had man. no idea what was going on. He had, he had a camera crew. He had a presidential candidate. He had new shoes. He had like five businesses going on at once. It's oh, like, yeah. it's like watching a mogul at work. It's, he, it's a master. It's a masterpiece, honestly. He's got shoes. He's got snacks. He's got music. Yes. He's got movies. He's always been this way. And, and you know, and the, and the great thing about P is he's always got something positive to say. Yep. Always. He's always got something positive to say about you. He's always encouraging Every time he sees, he's always encouraging me. But most importantly, he just don't talk about it. He's mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. He does it. Every time I see him, he's got 10 new ideas. Mm-hmm. He's always trying something. And I just love his energy because he brings that every single time you see him. And uh, I, I don't know. I got to reach out to him today. I got, I'm going to just go call <laughs> Fee. I got to call Fee now. Yeah, go call him. Uh, the P yeah. is not for Percy. It's for positivity. And uh, we're going to get to Coach Cowens right now. Your coach for the Charlotte Hornets, a, a legend back with the Celtics, the, the a player coach for the Boston Celtics at one point. He's got stories for days. He shared a lot of them with us in Chicago. And now let's get to it. Coach Dave Cowens. All right, and we are here again. I am Tate Frazier sitting alongside B.J. Armstrong, and we are joined by a, a man that was the Rookie of the Year at the NBA in 1971. Two years later, he was the MVP of that same league, that league being the NBA. We are joined by the great David Cohens. Coach Cohens, how are you? I'm doing okay. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing great. I just wanted to give you your resume just to see you laugh at that. I mean, I think that's pretty impressive, though. You know, I don't want people to know that you went from Rookie of the Year two years later to MVP. We don't see that often. Well, you know, at that same year in 73, when the first All-Star game was played in Chicago, mm-hmm. at Chicago Stadium, I was the MVP in that game in 73 oh, wow. here in Chicago. And that was the year that they just finished the Sears Tower mm. that year. 
That was the year well, it's, it's, that they ended the Vietnam War that year. There was a piece, so that's that, that stuff was going on in 1973. So you, let's just soak all that in, right? Okay. We got the Sears yeah, Tower. Yeah, 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 no, no, we got the Sears Tower that's because of you. Thing. Yeah, yeah, we, got, we got out of the Vietnam War, War because of you, your great. MVP All-Star Game. I mean, this is big for Chicago, and it's great to have you back. And we're uh, we're excited to get some knowledge from you. Again, we're, we're joined by all the legends here, the Retired Players Association. And BJ and I have been asking everyone about the, the current iteration of the game versus when you were playing the game. Is there one distinct thing that you see uh, in today's game that's maybe a little bit different from say 1973 you when you were in the, the all-star game yeah yeah let's talk about the all-star game yeah okay it was held on a tuesday <laughs> think about that a tuesday on tape delay or just tuesday i don't know if it was even taped i don't know but they had seventeen thousand people show up i think they paid 15 bucks a ticket i think that's what it was um we had played with celtics four games the week before mm -hmm. had a game on sunday in boston so i flew to chicago on paid my own way on on monday no wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. you paid your own way to That's play right. in the all-star game correct and then i paid my own way back to boston on um wednesday but we had one thing of required attendance on monday night I had to go to a little dinner and we had i think maybe buddy hackett or somebody was the entertainment and um <laughs> And, and so um, that was it. You came in, you went to the event on Saturday, you played a game on on Monday, and then Tuesday. We, I was surprised. I thought it was a Sunday. It was a Tuesday. Wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Coach, I, I, this, is a, this is a question. You know, I grew up in the 70s. I was born in the late 60s. Yep. How did you play in those sneakers in 1973? Did you were you a Converse guy or Adidas? Uh, Converse out of high school and college, and then I I, I toyed with the with Adidas a little bit. Um, some guys were Puma. I think Joe mm -hmm. Joe White and some, I think he oh was you a know Puma Clive Fraser, Clive was it Clive was a yeah Puma he was guy. a Puma. So they were yeah everybody was getting their own little team together of guys right. wearing the shoes, and um, but you know. They were free, so I used to, you would so did wear. You play in the Converse? You played in the Converse cons. I did. How? Well, you're right. It's kind of like a bowling shoe in a way. There's not a whole lot of support in them, you know. Um, but that's what you were used to. So you did it for a while, and then the shoes got a little bit better. Then they got weird. They started putting the air in them, and they jacked up the soles of them. So right. if you sprained your ankle, it was a real bad sprain instead of just a minor that's one right. because you were so much higher off, mm -hmm. the, you know, with all that cushioning. Um, and um, but no, I, and I did tiger shoes. I was the first guy on the East Coast to do a tiger shoe. Um, Jamal Wilkes had them on the West Coast, Japanese firm, Onitsuka, um, and um, so yeah, I got. Most of the time, it was Adidas or Converse or Tiger. Adidas, Coach. When did when did you know that coaching was in your DNA? It's how not, did you make that? Joke? You know <laughs> that. No. You played for me. You know. I, I didn't know. Yeah, and I, and I told you that prior to you coming on. One of my and I, and I mean this. One of my most valuable lessons as an mm. NBA player was the years I was down there because we had such a cast of characters, right? I mean, we had characters on this team. And we had like everything that could happen imaginable, right? Uh, on that team. And and we had a really good team. But yeah, we were coaching 50, it, 50 wins. Yeah, I mean, coaching is tough. That's a, that's a tough profession, especially in the NBA. 
But when did you say, you know what, I want to take a crack at this? Um, when I needed a couple of dollars. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Hey, you spent all your money on that flight to the All-Star game. <laughs> well, I got out, you know, I, I got out of basketball in 83, and I got the job in um, an assistant coaching job in uh, San Antonio in 95. Mm -hmm. So there was a 12 year where I was out and about just working and doing things and, you know, and, um, and then I decided I needed, to, I wanted to go back and try coaching. So you enjoy this story. So, you know, you used to have the, uh, the games, the preseason game camps in uh, New York. Right. You'd go up there and have a lot of games and people would look at the talent college. And um, I think this was before Chicago. And um, Pop, who I worked for, who hired me, he, I was one of the, the first staff along with Hill and, and, and Hank Egan and Paul Pressey, mm -hmm. who's our staff down there in, in uh, San Antonio. So um, I drove down, I got a friend of mine who was running a basketball camp. We drove down to the hotel that I knew Pop was staying at. I called up the office in San Antonio and found out where he was staying. So then I got there, I called him up, I said, hey, Pop, this, this is Cowan. I'd like to talk to you. Can I have breakfast with you in the morning? So he said, yeah, okay. So that's when I put it on him. told him, I want to coach, man. Can, you, can I get a job down there with you? And, um, and uh, so <clears throat> he, <laughs> he wasn't sure. <laughs> he wasn't sure. So, um, um, you know, he, he's one of his sons went to a school in Maine where I was living, I was working on a cabin. So he stopped by to kind of interview me when I was up here. And so he saw where I was working. I took him out on a canoe ride in the in the lake. I said, you know, if you don't hire him out, your ass is going <laughs> in right now. <laughs> so anyway, that's kind of the relationship we had. So then he hired Bob Hill to be the head coach. Right. Called me up and said, Hill and him went on the phone and said, would you, um, you want to be an assistant? I said, yeah, I'll be an assistant. And then, um, so that's how I got into it. And I just wanted to see, it was interesting because I had been a player coach in Boston, right the year before we got Bird. And um, they, they, we were two and 12, they fired Tom Sanders and they asked me to coach, take the team over. And it was only because I had renegotiated a contract that summer. So now I, they didn't pay me anymore. They just said, well, we just gave him some more money. We'll make him coach too. <laughs> So I go good business by the team. I well, mean, I mean, that was John Y. Brown, right? <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I said, you know, I'm doing for the team. I do it, you know. It's, it's you know, so I, <laughs> I just got married the same year. I just got married, so it was, um, it was different. And I, I remember the first, <laughs> the first conversation I had with the team. You know, I go from being their teammate the next day. I'm the coach and their teammate. So I go, hey guys, here's the deal. They've tried to trade all of us. Nobody wants us. So why don't we just bind together and try to make the best out of a good situation until <laughs> we can all move on at some point in time. And we won eight straight. <laughs> <laughs> then we went on a road trip with John Wyatt made a deal for McAdoo to come to the team from New York. Oh, Bob McAdoo? He didn't want to be mm. there because he and I were like doing this for many years yeah, right. as competitors. And it's like, he wanted to be in New York, he, you know, he didn't have that Boston vibe. But then we went on the road. Oh, man, we got killed, you know, and it all turned around. But we went through, I think, 21 players on that team that year. Wow. Just guys in and out. 
one guy, Don Smith, changed his name to Abdul Aziz. There's a ship named after him somewhere, I think. He joined us on the road. He got cut on the road. So he was a Celtic, never wore a home uniform. <laughs> <laughs> That's can the we, kind of crazy Mike, stuff that goes on. Can we please on, confirm man. that story? I've never <laughs> yeah, heard a story yeah, like that. He never got a home uniform? <laughs> never, was on, never played in the Boston oh, Garden. Wow. Was on a team. How do you run practices as a player coach? I mean, what does that look like? Well, you go I had from... Casey Jones and Bob McKinnon were my assistants. Mm -hmm. So Casey had, you know, experience and a former, you know, great coach and player for the Celtics. And so, you know, I mean – you know, you sh you should really be able to play a lot of get a lot of minutes <laughs> <laughs> if you want them. But um, uh, you know, I was I actually when I first when we got McAdoo, I benched myself and started McAdoo. You know, I said, well, let's get him in there and let him get acclimated to playing with all the guys and you know things like that. So, um, and then we you know we just sort of played it by ear as we went along. There's so much confusion and craziness going on. Everybody knew we weren't going to do anything, so right. we're just hanging on, you know, and getting getting over with the season. Well, we end up winning like 29 games, you know, and um, and <laughs> the final, the, my final game in Boston Garden. You know, Red used to light up a cigar, right. Stogie. I got me one of them little tipperillos, and so at the game we were beating the, the Nets. They were going to the playoffs, so they rested all their guys, yeah. and we're out there trying to win the last game, right? So Kevin Lockery's down there, so I, we got the game. I light up my little tipperello and sit on the bench. <laughs> Just for something to do. <laughs> Just to make it fun. That's legendary. <laughs> I'm sure Red appreciated that. Uh, yeah, I probably didn't even notice. <laughs> but, um, but, um, and then after the game, I told everybody, I said, I'm not going to coach anymore. I just really didn't want to do it. So and Red's mad at me because I didn't give him a time to have a plan to get somebody else. You know, right. he thought I was going to think about doing it. But I should have because, listen, BJ, the next year we draft Bird. So if I'd have stayed the coach, I would have went from 29 games to 60 games, been coach of the year. <laughs> and you would have been the genius. Just because you I never would have come on the show, though. You would have been like, ah. I've been big time. Yeah, you've been big time. Big time, big time right? you know? Yeah, so. Um, so I said no. So I went that that summer. I really got in good shape, and um, you know came back in training camp with Bird and them, and tried to set the pace and show them what it's all about to be a good team. And we ended up winning 60 games. We lost in the playoffs to Philly, but um, you know he had Bird in there, and he made a lot of good things happen. Yeah, I mean that guy could play. Coach, did you always play the center position? Yes. What was it like? I mean, you played some uh, when I. I remember the first time I got screened by Artis Gilmore mm. and these people. Like, how was it playing? Because the game was even much more physical back in, even when I was playing. How were you playing the game as? I thought when you played in it, you played in what the nine, like, like the late eighties and the nineties. Yeah, I thought it was really physical when you had the, the Knicks and you know you had Mason and you had all that stuff going on at Oakley and all the guys that were playing against him and your right. Chicago team. I thought it was too physical. Really, I did at that point in time, and and um, we weren't. It wasn't that physical. Um, uh, it just wasn't. And 
that I can remember because I played against some of those guys that um, like Jeff Rulin and yeah. Mahorn and those guys and those guys are posting me up and I'm pushing on them I'm going you know that's like pushing on a wall I, I know that these guys are much stronger than me so I'm I'm gonna go out here and I'm gonna be that <laughs> perimeter player for a while right, right. make them chase me around you know trying to figure that out these guys got so big and physical um, I thought it took away from the game a little bit you know but for me as a center I always thought it was I, – I usually did okay against guys that were not like me. So if a guy was bigger and he had a post-up game and I could take him outside, now I had an advantage. If you play against somebody who's kind of just like yourself, you don't have any advantage mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in a way. You know what right. I mean? It's, a, it's like then who does the best at their advantage in a way, a little the game within the game yep. kind of a thing. So I didn't mind playing against Jabbar or Thurman or Chamberlain. Walton, Reed and I were about the same size, Unsel, Elvin Hayes, but a lot of guys, you know, they could really shoot it. They could pass, shoot, rebound. You know, they weren't single dimension guys. And the ball was in the big guy's hands a lot. The, the offense was still the center. He had the ball and it was like people were moving around you either on the elbow or the high post or the low post, Right. you know, and not a lot of dribbling to more pass, move, pass, you know, cut without the ball, get it, jump up, get a 12-footer, go to the rack, you know, go to the rim. Um, so it was just a, it was a different style of play. Um, and I surprised, I had an advantage because I was faster and quicker than most guys. Mm-hmm. You know, and then when I finally learned how to shoot a little bit from the outside and be consistent as a, you know, 15, 18-foot shooter, it, it made it a lot easier. And then... We got Paul Silas to take care of a lot of the interior stuff while I was floating around on the outside, and so we partnered up really nice. It was really, yeah. it was good. You mentioned the game within the game. In the All-Star game, we see a lot of, you know, it's a showcase, right? Everyone's just trying to get their points and put them on display, but there's also there's the little things that happen. Like we were talking about, you don't defer in the All-Star game. You know, you got to make a statement that you're one of these top-level guys. Was that happening in your All-Star version, in your All-Star game, or is it still just like, I guess we have to go play in this game. I, I read the article the day after the game by a guy in the um, Chicago paper. Mm-hmm. He said people were ripped off if they paid $15 to see what they saw the night before. He said they, everybody was excited. He said some nice things about me because I played hard and I was the MVP and all that. But um, he talked about Nate Archibald. Now he was out there, you know, jitterbugging around and going after people and playing, you know, yeah herky-jerky and doing what he did so well. And that was year, 73 was year, he, he, he averaged, uh, he, he was a leader in points and assists. Doesn't happen too often. Wow. That way he was wow. playing for Kansas City at the time. So he was he was on the West team. Um, but th- that was the review one one guy said, <laughs> you know, and they're showcasing all these products. I'm going, I didn't even know they had commercials back then. Right, you know? right. But no, you know, no jumbotrons, no replays, mm-hmm. no music, no. It was just a very subdued. It was kind of like another game with a lot of good players in it, just like another game. And very little dunking, but just guys move around fast move, cut, get somebody, shoot it, rebound, go down. And like I, I said in the paper, team that wins usually is um, <clears throat> a team that gets a lot of points off the break, mm-hmm. you know, the easy baskets in those kind of games. Um, so, um, and, you know, we ended up shooting a little bit better. But Jabbar didn't play any game. 
something was wrong. I don't know what, another guy was out with an injury. So instead of having Jabbar, Chamberlain, Spencer Haywood, oh Nate Thurman, and gosh. Lanier, I only had to deal with. <laughs> and, and if you look at all the teams from the East all those times, our, 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 big, our big lineup was Wes Unseld, mm. uh, Dave DeBusher, um, Elvin Hayes, myself, maybe Bob McAdoo, Kaufman. Well, those guys are all, nobody's over 6'9". And the other team was always Chamberlain, Jabbar, <laughs> Lanier, Thurman, Walton. Every, all the seven-footers are out west. It was every all-star game. If you look at it, the lineups were all, oh, those, those guys are, were all out there, man. Those are just, just those names, right? And, uh, well, coach, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. And just want you to know, because my dad, you were my dad's, one of my dad's favorite players. And he oh, would always nice challenge me to say, he would always say to me, if you could ever play as hard as him, <laughs> you're doing something. So, but wasn't it fun though? I mean, when you play, I mean, how can you not play hard? I mean, everybody's out there looking at you. You got these guys all trying to pick on you, make you look bad. You embarrass <laughs> so it's like, you got, what do you got, man? You got to try to do something. You know? I know. And, and, um, Survival to fit is like the boxers. You know, the guy that wins, usually the guy's in the best shape. I know. Right? Yeah, and that's how that works. Gotta be able to take the punches. Yeah. And then, yeah, you can absorb them, get up. Rocky Marciano one time, <laughs> he saw, he saw a, a fight. He was judging a fight. And the guy that got down the most, he gave him the most points. And he said, oh, that guy keeps getting up. I gotta give him some credit for that. It's <laughs> a good outlook. That was his outlook. Great, oh, Coach. Well, we appreciate you coming through. Oh, and again, this is uh, we're, we're talking to legends. Yeah, we're trying to find. Yeah, we can give you anything.